this is episode 292 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is brought to you completely free by the support of our patrons. Access the complete back catalog of episodes and contribute directly to programming when you sign up to be a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hello, I'm Martin Rowley, meteorologist and climate historian. William Shakespeare lived at a pivotal time in the history of England. To better understand his life, listen to That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. It's his opinion that the tempo originally was not slow or heavy, but lively and sparkling, as he put it, and the accents full and hearty. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The Pilgrim Psalter, originally titled The Book of Psalms, Englished in Prose and Meter, was produced by Henry Ainsworth in 1612. Ainsworth was a Hebrew scholar and a Bible teacher among the English separatists in Amsterdam, Holland. The work he produced is called a Psalter because it's a translation of the Hebrew Psalms, which was written between 1010 and 930 BC during the time of David and his son Solomon. Ainsworth's translations of the Psalms are musical, set to tunes that were popular in the Reformation era and are remembered today for being remarkably faithful to the original Hebrew text. When the English pilgrims fled to Holland in an attempt to escape religious persecution in England, they adopted the Ainsworth Psalter and carried it with them to North America on the Mayflower. Here today to share with us the history of the Pilgrim Psalter and the journey it took across the ocean at the start of the 17th century is our guest and historian of the Ainsworth Psalter, Mary. Mary Huffman. Mary Huffman is a music teacher and historian of the Pilgrims based out of Montgomery, Alabama. She gained a love for history in her youth when her parents took her to a historical sites and gave her primary sources to read. With her background in music, Mary has reprinted the Psalter used by the Mayflower Pilgrims in singing and worship, available now at her website, Psalter Company. Mary Huffman serves on the board of the Plymouth Rock Foundation, a ministry that seeks to preserve and pass on the Pilgrims' story and heritage and the principles by which they lived. You can find links to Mary's reprinting of the Ainsworth Psalter, along with links where you can learn more about her and her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the show. Why was Henry Answorth translating the Psalms into Reformation tunes? I mean, was he creating a hymnal? Henry Ainsworth's objective in translating the Psalms, putting them into metrical verse, and setting them to psalm tunes was to create a book of worship for the separatists. What we would call a hymnal today, but it was strictly the Psalms, no uninspired hymns. The separatists believed that only the Psalms were to be sung in worship, no uninspired hymns. There was already a book of metrical psalms in use in the Church of England at the time, a book known today as the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter, which was published in 1562. The reason the separatists created their own was that they believed that the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter was a, quote, so harsh and hard a phrase that they knew not what the phrases meant 
neither could they sing them with understanding. Or, as Puritan Cotton Mather later put it, there were, quote, so many detractions from, additions to, and variations of not only the text, but the very sense of the psalmist, that it was an offense unto them. Ainsworth Psalter, on the other hand, was not so, but was conscientiously accurate with the Hebrew and very plain and forthright. So it was a whole lot more accessible to them, it sounds like it was. I And I feel for them, especially as a Shakespearean, because that's you know, people's chief objection to Shakespeare is that the language is really hard. So I think that's definitely a commonality of understanding that we can have with the pilgrims about why they would want to adapt their their hymnal into something that was more easily understood. Right. More easily understood. Also, they were concerned with literalness and literal translation from the Hebrew into English. They did not want any addition to or subtraction from or a mixture with anything else. They wanted to be strictly biblical and exactly what it said they wanted to sing. So no no embellishments and no um, none of that, like what it means to me business. It's just, exactly. yeah, I got it. So the Psalms is part of the Bible. And as such, they are already songs. They were primarily written by King David as praises to God. And since the Bible was already translated into English at this point in history by King James with his famous King James version of the Bible that was published in 1611, I wonder why Answorth felt he needed to translate the Psalms at all. So Mary, I mean, wasn't that an unnecessary step since the Hebrew Bible had already been translated into English? Well, the Hebrew Bible had been translated into English in several instances. In fact, by this time, the King James or authorized version had just been produced in 1611. The Geneva Bible, which is the one that the pilgrims carried and used, had been produced in 1560. The first complete English Bible was produced in 1535, in which Miles Coverdale did the translation of the Psalms from the Hebrew. Ainsworth's differed from these in that it was written in metrical verse, so it was poetry containing meter and rhyme. Of course, there were already metrical versions of the Psalms, too, like the one we just spoke of, the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter in 1562, but these were, were not literal enough to satisfy Henry Ainsworth and the other separatists. As an example, Psalm 37, verse 6, is translated in the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter with this wording. The perfect life and godly name, he will clear as the light, so that the sun, even at noondays, shall not shine half so bright. The wording there makes it sound like God's going to make the righteous shine twice as bright as the noonday sun. If we look at the King James Version or the Geneva Bible, both of them have this wording, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday or as the noonday sun. It's just as the noonday sun, not brighter than. And uh, Ainsworth, being desiring literalness, he um, captures that with his version, which reads, and will bring forth thy justice as the light and thy judgment as the bright shining noon. So. That's why he and the other separatists felt that there was a need for a new translation of the Psalms into metrical verse for the sake of literalness and uh, close adherence to the Hebrew. Now, you're mentioning that they were set to a certain meter and a certain rhyme. And so I wonder about 
what these tunes were that Ainsworth selected to be used for his songs. Was he using songs that were intended to be sang out loud? And what would the psalms have sounded like when the pilgrims were singing them? At the time of Ainsworth publication, which was 1612, the psalm tunes were not as a rule given names just yet. Rather, a given tune was attached to a particular psalm in a particular psalter given no name and then associated with the number of that psalm. The 1562 Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter in English became the standard for such numerical associations. And in fact, the tune we now know as Old 100 is called that because it was used for Psalm 100 in that Psalter. Interestingly, Old 100 originally, when it was first printed, it was paired with Psalm 134 in the French Psalter in 1551. So it was originally not Old 100, but Old 134. But it became associated with Psalm 100 and is known today as Old 100 as its name. That was the naming convention that's been followed with this kind of tune that was paired with a particular numerical psalm. That one is used in Ainsworth's Psalter. It's used for Psalm 100 and Psalm 105 in his Psalter. That's the most, the most well-known tune that Ainsworth used. It's still known today. Another tune that is found in some church hymnals today and Psalters is, also, is known as Old 124th. It was paired with Psalm 124, obviously, in the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter. Ainsworth used it for Psalm 124, as well as for seven other different psalms. There are a handful of other tunes that are still used today, especially in churches that sing psalms exclusively, like Old, old um, 44th, which was paired with Psalm 44 and a handful of others, but they were not given names as we would do two names today, but just the numbers of the Psalms. As far as how they sounded, of course, you can still hear some of them today, but it's often erroneously thought that the Puritans and separatists must have sung in a slow and mournful way, but evidence really points to the contrary. The tunes themselves have a built-in energy with much variation in the rhythm, even some syncopation in some of the tunes. It's the opinion of music scholar Walden Seldo Pratt, who studied and reprinted the music of the Ainsworth Psalter in 1921 for the 300th anniversary of their coming over to America. It's his opinion that the tempo originally was not slow or heavy, but lively and sparkling, as he put it, and the accents full and hearty. The tunes seem to come from a popular or folk song tradition primarily from England and France, making them easily accessible to a congregation. Pratt says this was true of all the countries touched by the Reformation. And he calls it, quote, a freshness of song that was characteristic of Protestantism at its youthful stage. When Pratt was analyzing Answorth's Psalter for his publication in 1921, did he find that he was just as impressed with Ainsworth's treatment of the English language and his general literary skills that he actually compared Ainsworth to Shakespeare? Yes, he did. He says, after assessing the literary style of Ainsworth's Psalter, he says, in quote, the style is concise and nervous. And by nervous, that's the old use of the word nervous, which means vigorous. So the style is concise and vigorous, with not a few quaintnesses and some angularities, but on the whole, fairly well illustrating that virile period 
when modern English was being forged by such masters as Bacon and Shakespeare into a mighty weapon of expressional force and brilliance. Which makes it important to discuss Ainsworth and his Psalter publication because he apparently had such an influence on the English language and the dissemination of, of English out with the, with the pilgrims there the, as Shakespeare did on the English language. So very important to look and explore his contributions there. Where do you think they were getting the music from? Because it sounds like Ainsworth and even some of the others, the the Sternhold and Hopkins, wasn't writing the actual music. They were just creating words to go to the music or or pairing the psalms with existing tunes. Who was it that wrote the music originally? Were these folk songs that existed in the culture that they just took and appropriated for, for use in the church? Or had they been written by someone further back in the Reformation, like Luther or, or someone? That's a good question. They were drawn from the Reformation song tunes, as Ainsworth put it, from England, France, and Holland. But where, who had written them beforehand? That's your question. Primarily, especially the French song tunes, for example, were written by three primary musicians in France at the time of the writing of the Reformation Psalter, which has covered a period of several years. It was first begun in the 1530s and lasted all the way up to 1562. Three different musicians primarily had a hand in writing the actual tunes. A man named Guillaume Franck, another man who's better known in Louis Bourgeois, and another man whose first name was Pierre, and I'm not at the moment remembering his last name, but those three primarily wrote the French psalm tunes. As far as the English psalm tunes, of which mm, there were fewer, they seem to have been composed by English musicians in Geneva, some of the Marian exiles who fled to Geneva during the time of Bloody Mary's reign, unnamed musicians, but they were When I say drawn from a popular folk song tradition, I don't mean they were just popular songs sung on the streets. That was not the case, but rather they were, they follow the pattern of the folk songs of the day. They had a a structure that would have repeated musical lines, for example, or similarities in musical lines following a folk song pattern and tradition, sometimes containing snatches of melodic patterns that come from an actual folk song or even a plain song, a chant that would have been known, but uh, not necessarily songs that would have just been known on the streets. It's sort of similar in the way that when we listen to music today, we expect there to be a chorus that repeats every after each verse in, in a song today. That's what you mean by melodic patterns that they would have had a a format of music that was expected. And several of these songs would have followed that, but these were all written. The tunes even were written with religious use in mind. They weren't borrowing from, you know, pop culture or secular music. Exactly. Yes. Often we see today in piece of sacred music, a structure that has a opening line and then a repeated line, either exactly repeated or similar then variation for the third line, and then back to that repeated line for the fourth. That's a typical structure we often see. So that's the kind of melodic structure that I'm talking about. And now I know you had mentioned that you have a few of these songs available there that 
have, that recreate these tunes. Is that something that you can share with us here on the show today? Yes, I can. I can provide you with some samples. I will share with you a sample of Psalm 44. This one follows the metrical structure we just talked about, where we have an opening musical line, and then that musical line repeated exactly, almost, some variation towards the end of the line, and then a very, very third line, and then back to a fourth line that is similar to lines one and two. And uh, this is Psalm 44 in the Ainsworth Psalter. It's the tune now known as Old 44 and can still be found in some Psalters uh, to this day. Oh God, we with our ears have heard, our fathers have us told, the work thou wroughtest in their days. Wow, that's amazing to get to hear music straight from the past like that and to think that this was the same music that the pilgrims were hearing in their congregations. And I, I like to think they might have even been, you know, singing it together on on places like the Mayflower. How exciting to to get to share in that. Thank you for sharing that with us and letting us hear it. That's pretty exciting to get to do. Mary has graciously donated some other sound bites of some of the Answorth Psalter hymns that the pilgrims would have used, and we're going to share those in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find those, and you can play them right on the show notes page. We'll give you the link for that when we finish the interview. So Mary, when the English pilgrims went to Amsterdam, were they connected with Ainsworth personally, or were they just using something that had been published by him more broadly? Yes, they were connected with him personally. Henry Ainsworth moved to Amsterdam with a group of earlier separatists in 1593. So he was there before the pilgrims came. They did not arrive until 1608. They came to Amsterdam and attached themselves to the separatist church in which Henry Ainsworth was at that time what was called a teacher, one who preached from the scripture, though he was not an ordained pastor. He was a Hebrew scholar, well-recognized as such, knew his Bible very well, and the pilgrims were very closely acquainted with him. Bradford actually recorded of his personal life. He was a man very modest, amiable, and sociable in his ordinary course and carriage of an innocent and unblameable life and conversation, of a meek spirit and a calm temper, void of passion and not easily provoked which tells us a lot about his character. Bradford also, he had just the highest words of praise for Henry Ainsworth. He called him a man of a thousand. He said the times and place in which he lived were not worthy of him. He said he, he just knew his Bible extremely well, was thoroughly acquainted with it. And in his own words, Bradford said, it seemed as, quote, as if the book of God had been written in his heart. He was as ready in his quotations without tossing and turning his book as if they had lain open before his eyes. They were only, the pilgrims were only with Henry Ainsworth for nine months. They stayed in Amsterdam only nine months, and then they were moved to Leiden due to what they could foresee as contention about to break out in the church in Amsterdam. But even after that, they maintained very close connections with Henry Ainsworth. Ainsworth would write to Pastor John Robinson for counsel. 
they retained a love for him that lasted 40 years. It was 40 years, a full 40 years later that William Bradford wrote these warm words about Henry Ainsworth. So what makes Ainsworth's Psalter so unique? Ainsworth's Psalter is unique among English Psalters in five features, I believe. First of all, he endeavored to capture a full translation of Hebrew words. There are many times when a, a single Hebrew word cannot be translated with just a single English word. For example, one word that he often translates with two is the Hebrew word kasid. Often in our English Bibles, that's translated as holy one or saint, but Ainsworth often translates it gracious saint because it conveys the qualities of mercy and kindness in addition to holiness and piety. That's the first feature, full translation. The second is consistency of translation. Throughout his Psalter, especially within Psalms, if he has the same Hebrew word occur twice or multiple times, he will often use the same word or term, a couple of words to translate that Hebrew word. But even throughout the whole Psalter, he endeavors to be as consistent as possible. An example is the Hebrew word mayod. It's an intensifier. It can be translated very but he often translates it vehemence or vehemently, some form of the word vehement. So consistency of translation, number two. Number three is he preserves Hebrew figures of speech, which they occur frequently in the Psalms because the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. Uh, for example, Psalm 12 uses the figure of speech with heart and heart, which is often translated with double heart. But Ainsworth just leaves it with heart and heart, leaving the Hebraism but explaining it in his commentary and notes. Number four, he also captures and conveys a very concise nature of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not wordy and full of embellishment. It's concise, fast moving, and I, noun verb, noun verb, it just moves right along. And compared to other English psalters that are wordy, Ainsworth is very concise and fast-moving and powerful. And finally, the fifth feature is parallelism. Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, does not rhyme, does not have the same kind of meter structure, but it rhymes, in a sense, in parallelism, in similar wording or grammatical structure. And in a very unique way, Henry Ainsworth captures that uh, with his psalms, especially Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, that talks about the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. It's a structure there of Hebrew poetry that he conveys very well in his English poetry. And to capture all these Hebrew features and still present them with intact English poetry with rhyme and meter is quite a feat. And it makes Ainsworth Psalter stand out among English Psalters. Now, what does it mean to say that they adopted Ainsworth Psalter for use in their congregation? Was the Ainsworth Psalter an update or a significant change from the previous ones the pilgrims had been using? Pilgrims, having uh, being separatists, they would have come out of the Church of England. So the only one they would have, the only Psalter they would have known would have been the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter. So they were having the same problems that we discussed at the beginning of too many additions, subtractions, detractions, twisting, changing the, the wording, the meaning. Uh, and they wanted something more literal. So 
when this one became available in 1612, they had already removed from Amsterdam to Leiden at the time, but they were aware of Ainsworth's work and they, they became the one and the only one they used in their pilgrim worship services for the next 80 years. They embraced it, wanted it for use and used no other until 1692 when they voted to begin using the Bay Psalm book. How do we know that the Psalter made the journey with the pilgrims to Plymouth Colony in the 1620s? What, what evidence do we have of them using it there in the New World? We know that the book made the journey because it appears in a list of the books that were in Elder William Brewster's library at the time of his death. It's in the list of books that went to either William Bradford or to Brewster's son-in-law, a man named Thomas Prince, who succeeded Bradford as governor. Uh, So it's in the list there as having come to the New World in Brewster's library. We know it was used in the Pilgrim Church because that fact is recorded in the church records. Uh, There's a whole collection of the church records that's available online, and you can read about them. And it's very clear that the Ainsworth Psalter is the one they used. Now, on her website, Mary sells a reproduction of Henry Ainsworth's Psalter, and they write there that Ainsworth's Psalter continued in use by the pilgrims until the colony ceased to be independent in 1692. Mary, what happened in 1692 that meant the pilgrims could no longer use this Psalter? In May of 1692, Plymouth, which due to its being blown off course and the Mayflower Compact, it had never had a formal charter. So in May of 1692, Plymouth was combined with the Massachusetts Bay Colony and other territories by a newly issued royal charter that proclaimed these colonies to be one. It was called now the province of Massachusetts Bay. This did not by itself mean that the pilgrims could no longer use their Psalter, but it both created and reflected an increasingly closer tie between Plymouth and the Puritan colonies. The Puritan churches in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, for example, use what is known today as the Bay Psalm Book. That's the first English book printed in America, actually, printed in 1640. The Bay Psalm Book itself was heavily influenced by Ainsworth's Psalter and even borrowed much of its language. In Psalms like Psalm 4, where the meter is the same with the Ainsworth, the language is almost exactly parallel, but it contained a lot less variety of meter, a lot shorter and simpler tunes, which made it even easier to sing from than the Ainsworth Psalter. So both for ease of singing and for uniformity with its now sister churches in its own colony, the Pilgrim Congregation in Plymouth voted to switch over to the the Bay Psalm Book. They actually did not vote to replace their own with the Bay Psalm Book, just to supplement, but in effect, it eventually replaced it. Uh, not without protest in Plymouth. They love their Psalter, and that did not, that vote did not go through without some protest. But by this time, John Cotton, the younger, was pastor in Plymouth, and it was his own father who had had a hand in, the, in producing the Bay Psalm book. So uh, it was a natural step for them to take by this time. But the Ainsworth Psalter did not lose its influence and did not just pass into oblivion. It It was a very strong influence on the Bay Psalm book, which lasted for the next 80 years in the colonies. 
This is just a fascinating story about how one book can reveal so much about these people and their lives and what was important to them during this period. And I know from just what you've shared with us, we would love to learn more about this topic. So what can you suggest for us as books or resources we should use to begin with when we want to learn more about the pilgrims and the history of the Psalter? The primary book that I would recommend for learning the history of the Psalter, well, first of all, the reprint of the Psalter that I have recently completed back in 2021 for the 400th anniversary contains a lot of what we've just talked about, the information on its history and its use. Uh, that is available through my company website called the Salter Company, www.saltercompany.com. But the source I used for learning what I learned was um, a book called The Music of the Pilgrims by Waldo Selden Pratt, a music scholar who did a reprint of the music only, not the entire Psalter, but the music only in 1921 for the 300th anniversary. That is a fine work, and you can learn a lot about the pilgrims and their music and their worship through his work. I have found it available only online in facsimile form, but uh, it's easily available there. It can be downloaded and printed. Another work that is very helpful is um, actually a thesis that was done by a student named Lorraine Insera under the guidance of H. Wiley Hitchcock from the Brooklyn College in New York in 1981. This is a very thorough study of all the music, again, not the words, but the music of Ainsworth Salter. It has a lot of sources and features of the tunes and tables describing them and Anything you could want to know about the tune is compiled pretty much in her work. Of course, primary sources are wonderful for learning about the pilgrims and their worship of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, Mort's Relation, Good News from New England by Edward Winslow. Uh, those are wonderful resources for learning about the pilgrims. We will link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode, along with those extra sound bites that we mentioned. So make sure you go there to see all of those and just have an easy way to find exactly what you're looking for. Now, Mary, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, that's it. I have been waiting for this question because I knew it was coming. And it's an interesting question to ask when we're discussing a book. And uh, so I've been thinking how best to answer it. And I think I'm going to go ahead and select this book that we're talking about, the Ainsworth Psalter, for this reason. Martin Luther called the Psalms a miniature Bible or a little Bible because they contain in a beautiful and compendious way everything in the Bible. There's a psalm that can be sung along with every Bible passage. John Calvin called the Psalms the anatomy of the soul. So not only do they convey everything in the Bible, they convey everything in the soul, every possible emotion and thought that the soul of man can experience. They're also unique in the Bible. They're not only God's words to us, but God's words that he gives to us to say and sing back to him. In fact, we're commanded to sing them back to him. So for all these reasons, it's important, in fact, essential that we have a means to sing the Psalms wherever we are on a desert island. And the way that we English speakers can best do that is by having them in metrical verse set to tunes that we can sing. After thorough study of Ainsworth's version for three years and doing this reprint, 
I am convinced that it is one of the most accurate translations, most closely adhering to the original Hebrew, and also that it uses some of the most appropriate tunes for conveying the depth and the expansive material that's in the Psalms. I personally loved the Psalms before I began the project, but I grew by quantum leaps in my love and understanding of the Psalms as I edited this volume and saw their beauty and power in plain, unadorned form with so much of the Hebrew meaning and structure intact. These Psalms made the pilgrims who they were. They came for purity of worship. In Bradford's words, worship according to the simplicity of the gospel and without the mixture of men's inventions. And this Psalter is really the clearest picture we can get of how they actually worship because it's the very book they used. We don't know exactly what they prayed or preached. That was extemporaneous, but we can see exactly what they sang. So this book reveals to us the heartbeat, the mainspring that made the pilgrims tick. These psalms have changed me, and I pray that they change all whom they touch and drive us all to that foundation upon which the pilgrims built their whole society, the simple word of God. I think that is certainly a thoughtful selection for your desert island choice. I think it's a fruitful use of your time there to ponder the anatomy of the soul. It's certainly a good selection and apropos for today's conversation. So yes, I appreciate your desert island selection. So Mary, what's next for you now? Now that you've reprinted this Psalter and the history associated with it, what are you working on today that you're excited about? Well, I began a Psalter reprint project before I completed the Pilgrim Psalter. This was the Scottish Psalter of 1564. We discussed today the English Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter of 1562. The Scots had a parallel but different Psalter around the same time, 1564. And theirs, unlike the English Psalter, had complete four-part harmony. A lot of people, even music scholars that I've talked to, don't realize this. It was somewhat lost to history. And even those who, once they realize it, they're doubtful that it was actually could have been used and sung in four-part harmony at that time. But there is a record that it was. In fact, there's a story of an exiled preacher named John Dury, who when he was brought back from exile, he was met on the streets of Edinburgh with a, a throng of people who followed him singing Psalm 124. And by the time they reached the head of the street, there were 2,000 singing it in four-part harmony. So that psalm with its four-part harmony and the other 150 psalms with their four-part harmony is the next project I am working on. I am so looking forward to seeing what you're able to do with this Scottish Psalter and hearing about the history that gets uncovered in your research there. Thank you so much, Mary Huffman, for being here today and taking us through the history of the Pilgrim Psalter right in the middle of Shakespeare's lifetime and just sharing this piece of history with us today. This has been a really fun conversation and certainly exciting history to explore. Thank you for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. We have packed bonus history into the show notes for today's episode that you don't want to miss. There are bonus sound files where you can listen to some of Ainsworth's translations set to music popular for the 16th century, along with printed versions of the quotes Mary shares today from famous pilgrims like William Bradford, along with some extra tidbits for resources and information on Psalters, as well as Henry Ainsworth personally, that you will be able to use to explore this topic further. It's all kinds of history packed into the show notes today. You can find all of these things 
belongs at CassidyCash.com slash episode 292. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 292. That Shakespeare Life is powered exclusively by listeners like you who support us as patrons. When you sign up to support our show, you can access our entire back catalog of episodes. That's over a hundred additional interviews that aren't available on public listening platforms. You can also have a hand in helping produce the show with insider looks at upcoming guests. And we offer patrons the opportunity to submit their own questions that they would like to have asked to these guests live on the air. Explore all the options for being a patron and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving season and that this episode helps you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.